Hi everyone, and welcome to the Nairobi Ideas Podcast, a podcast that gives a public platform to the Africans changing the world with their big ideas. Nairobi Ideas Podcast is brought to you by the Mawazo Institute, a Nairobi-based research organization focused on female thought leadership and public engagement with research. I'm your host, Dr. Rose Mtiso, CEO of Mawazo. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the Nairobi Ideas Podcast as we continue our series on climate and conservation. In case you missed the last couple of episodes, we've been sitting down with experts and activists to help us better understand how the continent is responding to climate and conservation challenges. This month, the Nairobi Ideas Podcast chats with researchers working within Kenya for their take on the greatest threats and opportunities in our conservation sector. First up is Dr. David Kimiti. David is Head of Research and Monitoring at Lewa Wildlife Conservancy. He's also a senior scientist specializing in rangeland ecology. His master's degree focused on elephant ecology and rangeland management, and his PhD research explored the use of mobile phone apps for rangeland management. During this time, David also worked with local communities and collaborating organizations in northern and southern Kenya to restore damaged landscapes. Hi, David. Hi, Rose. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So when most people hear about conservation in Kenya, we tend to center the conversation around animals and wildlife. But as specialist of rangeland ecology, you work in land restoration. So I have a two-part question for you. First, what exactly is rangeland ecology? And actually, while you're at it, could you also tell us what a rangeland is? Rangelands are basically any pieces of land or areas that cannot support rain-fed agriculture, but support native vegetation and forage. These would include, you know, the ones we are more familiar with, like grasslands and savannas and woodlands or bushlands, but also technically would also include forests and uh, mountain areas. But for the purposes of most conversations, we refer mainly to the savannas, woodlands and shrublands as rangelands. So where like animals, domestic or wild would graze. Exactly. Free grazing. And so then what is rangeland ecology? Basically, ecology is a study of interactions between organisms in a particular system. Ecology looks at how the vegetation interacts with the soils and how the soils interact with water and how all of this then interacts with wildlife. And so ecology is basically now the study of how all of that comes together. And so rangeland ecology is specifically not just looking at what is on the rangelands and in terms of livestock, in terms of wildlife, but also how all those species are relating with each other within mm -hmm. that system. Listeners, you can see this, but David is a really cool looking guy. He's got a really cool jacket with like sleeveless, I don't know, I don't know, vest, maybe it's a term for it, like really cool jeans, glasses. This guy does not look like he's come from the Kichaka, um, which is where he lives and works. So how did you find yourself in this field? Like if I saw you on the streets, I would not think for a second that you're out in the wilds like most of the time working with animals in the ranges? Well, first of all, I don't generally look like this. Um, I, I was dressed for radio. Um, and so, <laughs> and so most of the times I'm wearing some beat, old beat t-shirt and you know an old pair of jeans. But basically working in the bush is extremely exciting for me. I found myself in this field quite accidentally all the way from when I was selecting university courses. I didn't know what rangeland management was. So I showed up planning to switch to something more interesting like BCom, which I thought was very interesting mm -hmm. back then. That didn't work out. I, but I showed up and found classes in ecology and wildlife management and all of a sudden I was hooked. But I wouldn't really say I became a scientist until probably right after my master's when I started asking questions. I studied elephant ecology for my master's at the mm -hmm. University of Nairobi again. And I was interested in the interactions between elephants and the landscape, how they make decisions about where they go. And the two biggest factors were water and vegetation. And mm -hmm. water was pretty straightforward. Vegetation wasn't as straightforward. And so I just sort of dove into sort of the, the, the nitty gritties and realized the interactions between 
between soils and vegetation or what were leading the elephants to make decisions about where they went. And from there on, I just, I was hooked at that's, asking those questions. That's really awesome. I love the idea that science and curiosity is what led you into the wilds. Exactly. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think often people grow up being obsessed with animals, wanting to be a zookeeper, you know, <laughs> and then find the science that way. But it happened in the reverse for you. And yeah. I think everyone can join me in thanking fates that you did not end up being a, a major in business. <laughs> Speaking of elephants, you know, when many of us think of conservation, we think of the charismatic megafauna. So like the really large animals, the elephants, the rhinos, the polar bears, you name it. But your work is focused on broader ecosystem challenges, including carbing land degradation. So could you explain why you think this is central to conservation? This realization was born out of the fact that Species-specific conservation usually looks at, you know, the security of the animals, the numbers, are they growing? And it usually ends at that. And usually when people are looking at the metrics for success, it's usually we have X number of elephants that, or X number of rhino. Mm -hmm. That's usually the target that's set. But coming from an ecology perspective, I have to think of it in terms of, is there enough food for these animals? Is there enough water for these animals? How, for example, are elephant populations increasing? And once they increase, how are they affecting food for other animals? Because mm -hmm. elephants are very destructive in terms of woody vegetation. How is that then affecting? something like the black rhino which also relies on woody vegetation mm -hmm. to survive so if you're focused on species specific you know conservation you might end up in a situation where you have competing interests and depending on who's running the show if it's an elephant person they'll be focused on what's good for the elephant if it's a rhino person they'll be, want what's good for the rhino but if you're looking at it from an ecosystem perspective mm -hmm. you're looking at the base at which these animals are honestly if the ecosystem is healthy the wildlife will come by themselves, their numbers will increase and you just have to have minimal input in terms of mm -hmm. uh, keeping them safe. After that, they'll sort of take care of themselves. So if you focus on the ecosystem, the wildlife will come to it and they'll repopulate themselves. This is really interesting. And actually as an engineer, which was my background, this is very familiar and resonant in terms of what we call systems approach, you know, mm -hmm. and systems yep. thinking, which yeah. is, uh, you know, it's always easier to focus on your very specific domain than to look at the system as a whole. But yeah. I think everyone mm -hmm. is starting to agree that that's the best way yeah. to tackle these kind of really complex yeah. It is, and especially in, in when you have limited resources, both financial and natural resources, if you start focusing on species, you might find yourselves competing against each other. But if you focus on the ecosystem, then those, you know, limited resources and funds will help all the species across the board. So speaking of, you know, species versus ecosystem, you are the head of research and monitoring at Lewa, which is a really great conservancy in northern Kenya. And Lewa is proudly home to the endangered Gravi zebra. I'd like us to get a little bit deeper into this question of how you balance species conservation versus ecosystem conservation. But before we get into that, I think maybe set the scene for the listener a little bit. What is unique about this Gravi zebra? What is it and how did it come to be so vulnerable? So the Gravi zebra is the largest wild equid. So what, what do you say? The largest wild equid. So equid. wild horse, a horse-like animal. Oh, goodness. Okay, so... <laughs> Zebras and horses are in the same category. Basically, yeah. They are all okay. horses. Okay. Um, Good to uh, know. <laughs> and what about donkeys? Donkeys also, but slightly separate. Just okay. They're cousins, let's say. Okay. Yeah. So the Gravy Zebra is one of our iconic species in Kenya, primarily because we host about 95% of all the Gravy Zebra in the wild in, in Kenya. Kenya. Mm -hmm. They are extremely endangered. There's only about 3,000 of them left. Oh, goodness. And about 2,800 of those are in, are in northern Kenya. They are a dryland species, so they are adapted very well 
itself or the you know the dry areas in northern Kenya Samburu Marsabit so on and so forth but as human development has taken across increasingly the north and habitat loss and degradation all these factors have served to reduce their historical range and so now they are found in specific pockets across mm-hmm. northern Kenya and Lewa is one of those refuges we have about 14% of um, mm-hmm. Kenya's grevy zebra at the moment there's other refuges like Samburu National Reserve Westgate Conser- Community Conservancy and Samburu as well so they are found in these small pockets around Lewa we we are lucky in the sense that these animals are resident on our conservancy they don't move around a lot mm-hmm. so it makes it extremely easy for us to monitor them and ensure that their conservation that we do for the grevy zebra on Lewa actually is effective because then they are not moving around to the other you know areas where we can't really keep tabs on them I see. And so what are the efforts that are underway to conserve this grevy zebra at Lewa? So some examples. So conservation of the grevy zebra basically comes to conserving the ecosystem. If you have enough grassland resources and water resources, at the very least you'll have a stable grevy zebra population. However, grevy zebra are also very vulnerable to predation and we work with KWS to figure out how we can manage predation rates on these grevy zebra. So that's one of the things we're looking into. And KWS is a Kenya Wildlife Service. Yes, for the yeah. Listeners. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry for the assumption. But yeah, so we work with the Kenya Wildlife Service to make sure that we are providing the right and environment for grevy zebra to survive and to reduce predation on them. The other thing we do we 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 are one of the few places in Kenya that has an intensive monitoring program for the grevy zebra. We have a we have a research program on them that we can identify animals down to the individual level and we use software to do this. We've been using something called the image-based ecological information system mm-hmm. which is basically we take photos of the grevies and then we match the stripes. So grevy stripes are like human fingerprints. No okay. two grevy stripes mm-hmm. are the same. And so using that we able to build a database and so when we are taking photos of the of all the gravies and we come and run it through the system we are able to say yes we have 350 individuals because we know we have 350 individuals really cool. and this is a basis of the gravy zebra ra- the run yes yeah exactly it's like, a rally. safari rally or run it's a run <laughs> it's a rally rally oh, it's a rally it is a rally okay mm-hmm. <laughs> so the gravy zebra rally happens every two years mm-hmm. we use the same software to, to go around taking photos of all the zebras we can find across northern kenya and we take it through the system which was ibeis which is now wildbook so we we go around we take photos we match them we are able to identify individuals and from that we can tell survivorship for example we can tell how many foals are born this year how many of them survived into adulthood and we can have very clear sort of demographic tables or population tables so this is super awesome and i love the idea of citizen science and citizen engagement that people can come have this kind of fun day in the wilds and take pictures and contribute to this crowdsourced database of the individuals so this is all great you say there are 3000 gravy zebra and they're a cousin of a horse <laughs> i'm sure they're cute and wonderful i've seen i've seen them and they're great in terms of bang for buck you know how do we prioritize dedicating resources to conserve the grevy for example at lewa as opposed to say the rhinos like there's so many animals yes. that are critically endangered even at a place like mm-hmm. at lewa you have multiple you know interesting species including rhinos that are kind of one of these charismatic megafauna so as a conservationist and a researcher and a practitioner who is you know at the forefront at a conservancy how are these decisions made how should we think about the trade-offs involved in sharing resources across these conservation priorities That's a very good question and sort of goes to the heart of sort of the challenges facing conservation today and especially places like Lewa. One of the first things you have to think about is the level of 
danger if you will these animals are in so endangered species will unfortunately often get higher priority when it comes mm-hmm. to funding and conservation actions and you know that's only fair because you're sort of racing against a clock towards extinction with some of these animals mm-hmm. and so those ones tend to take priority and you know rightly so because every single individual matters and so for example we will intervene when we think a, a rhino or a grevy zebra has been injured mm-hmm. and we will deploy veterinary services for that we, whereas we wouldn't necessarily do that if it was a buffalo for example mm-hmm. Which is an endangered. Sorry, so, buffaloes. This is yeah, the, the hard yeah, lessons exactly. of nature. Uh, yeah, exactly. The other thing also is one of the things we have to remember is the challenges facing most of the endangered wildlife in Kenya tend to boil down to two things. Mm-hmm. Security, so in terms of poaching, illegal wildlife trade, so on and so forth, and habitat loss. And by focusing again, focusing on making sure that we are looking at degradation and how it's affecting wildlife and looking at restoring habitats and restoring ecosystems to where they were before, we go a long way in protecting mm-hmm. all of these species as a sort of blanket. And the challenges that we have to face then in terms of species-specific competition become a little bit less pronounced than mm-hmm. they would be if the resources were extremely limiting. And I'm more kind of then driven by natural dynamics. Exactly. Inter-specific uh, dynamics. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That was a great segue into my next question, which is on human-wildlife conflict. So this remains one of the most reported issues in conservation in Kenya, particularly in the north. We had the past few years, a you know, very high frequency of uh, high-profile human-wildlife conflict incidents. So what are the main ways that Lewa is addressing this issue? Because you really are at the intersection of... Uh, you know, human communities and wildlife communities? So Lewa's approach is definitely multi-pronged. We have a lot of different strategies we're using. The first is preventative. So a lot of the communities we work with on our boundaries might be engaging in activities that are not necessarily compatible with wildlife. For example, Mm -hmm. agriculture is incompatible with wildlife. You cannot grow cabbage where there's elephants around. Mm -hmm. They will eat all your cabbage (laughs) in one day. So uh, elephants like cabbages. They love cabbages. So (laughs) they will destroy your cabbage farm. You know, I'm just trying to imagine this massive elephant in a, cab- like a cabbage patch it's just it's so incongruous they're so massive yeah, so they eat anything honestly <laughs> you, you will see them picking tiny fruits off of a tree so they will eat anything and so one of the things we work with communities to do is make sure that we are protecting their farms from the wildlife you know for example making sure that you know fences around the agricultural areas are strong enough to deter mm-hmm. elephants from going into those communities elephants are cleverer than you know most people uh, recognize and it often ends up in, in a way where we are in and a sort of arms race with them to mm-hmm. try and keep them away from these farms which brings me to the second strategy which is innovation in terms of deterrent for elephants and we've been trialing several different things we're working with save the elephants to work on beehive fences because mm-hmm. elephants are afraid of bees so we use beehive fences to try and keep them away from farms so that's one of the other things we do we work also with places where the conflict is more in terms of depredation and livestock by things like lions and hyenas we work with farmers to make sure that their animal husbandry techniques are up to you know up to speed whether they are grazing in the forest, whether they are, you know, keeping them at home, making sure that the cattle enclosures are strong enough, predator proof enough to keep away these animals. So we work with those communities to do that. The other thing is just in terms of response. A lot of times these communities just want to see that someone has responded to their, the, the conflict that's happening on their, on their lands. And the Kenya Wildlife Service doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth to mm-hmm. uh, be able to respond to all these cases. So we've taken it upon ourselves to work with Kenya Wildlife Service to respond to incidents in, in our areas. We deploy our teams to go and record, take you know, take notes. We identify the the animals. We set up things like camera traps to identify specific individuals. And using this, we're able to target our uh, interventions. So if 
if people are crying out that elephant needs to be translocated out of an area, we need to know which elephant it was. We can't mm-hmm. just go and move a bunch of elephants, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know. So, so by targeting these problem elephants through our responses, we're able to give the Kenya Wildlife Service, you know, up to date information about what needs to be done. And we work very closely with those communities. We spend about half of our annual budget at Lewa on our communities that's, in terms of that's really impressive. Uh, yeah, in terms of education, in terms of livelihoods, development programs, microfinance, all of that. All of these to sort of build up the opportunities that they have so that they don't necessarily have to rely on the natural resources around them to make livelihoods. And that helps mm-hmm. shift a little bit away from the human wildlife conflict. And just education in general in terms of what it is and making sure that those communities have sort of incentive. You said something about innovation and your PhD research made use of mobile phone apps to help evaluate progress of land restoration um, using something known as land potential knowledge systems or land PKS. Could you tell us a little bit more about what land PKS is and how and why you used it in your research? Land PKS was born out of a desire to better understand land potential across the continent. And land potential is basically the ability of different types of land to produce different types and amounts of vegetation. So mm-hmm. if you think about it, soil that's really sandy won't produce the same amount of you know grass as a soil that's really loamy. And so if you think about it at that simple level, the question land PKS was trying to answer is how do we scale this up to areas where we have a lot of these you know shifts and changes in in soil types and topography and climate within small areas for land managers and the answer at the beginning was it is very difficult to do that at mm-hmm. that scale especially where you have a lot of heterogeneity or you know uh, differences in the landscape and it's possible but it was very technical very scientific what lamp pks aimed to do was provide a platform where people could do that easily so the platform was a suite of mobile phone apps and had different modules one of the modules was looking at soils and topography and another module was looking at vegetation cover and being able to monitor vegetation on rangelands and what we were trying to do was provide connectivity between the local scale so Mm -hmm. in terms of what the soils you know at my feet are Mm -hmm. connect that to global databases about or soils of this kind have this sort of productivity Mm -hmm. they have this sort of mineral composition and all of that and so by using your phone's gps and then some inputs that the phone prompts you to give it is then able to give you recommendations for this is your soil type this is how these soils perform when they're exposed to erosion this is what how they perform in terms of productivity and these are the suit of management options you have available to you in mm-hmm. terms of making this land useful so my phd was sort of two-way in the sense that i was developing the app for use while using it in my research which was restoration uh-huh. looking at how grasslands can be recovered from places that have for example have invasive species so what the, the proof of concept i was trying to make was that we could use this app to collect that vegetation data and soils data and use it to make informed decisions and so I was basically testing it as I was using it and that's yeah, really impressive and I mean as you have a PhD I'm assuming that you succeeded <laughs> I, someone uh, someone liked it <laughs> somebody, so. somebody agreed so I'm here now yeah okay. we like to end our podcast by asking all our guests about what their big idea is so basically you know what is the world you dream of and what is the role you see for yourself in realizing this so Dr. David Kimiti, what is your big idea? Thanks for putting me on the spot. I think my the way I describe it is I think the conservation industry in Kenya or the conservation space in Kenya, as well as the sort of national consciousness, doesn't really recognize the importance of ecosystem conservation and restoration, especially around northern Kenya where land is severely degraded, mm-hmm. loss of productivity across the board. I don't think we are paying enough attention to 
the impact that land degradation is having both on biodiversity as well as climate change. I think we are focused so much on biodiversity and climate change as abstract concepts without realizing that land degradation is actually the basis on which biodiversity loss and climate change impacts are going to be felt. Mm -hmm. In areas that are severely degraded, wildlife is not going to be available. There's not going to be space for wildlife to survive. In areas that is severely degraded, the loss in soil also leads to a loss in soil carbon or you know, one of our biggest sinks of carbon is the soil. Soil is by far the largest carbon it captures store. A lot of captures a lot of carbon. carbon. By losing that, we are still releasing gigatons of mm-hmm. CO2 in the air, even as a developing nation where it's not necessarily, we are not contributing that much to mm-hmm. climate change. So my sort of big idea is leading the conservation conversation more towards land resources, degradation and rehabilitation of landscapes in Northern Kenya. Because at the end of the day, livelihoods depend on mm-hmm. uh, these landscapes being restored. Biodiversity conservation relies on these landscapes being restored and our ability to adapt and mitigate to climate change effects rely on the land being able to provide continue providing going into the future congratulations once more this is really impressive work keep it up and thank you again for being on our podcast and thank you for providing the space for some of these conversations to be had i'm really excited by this also extremely impressed that you are able to say conservation conversation (laughs) conservation conversation conservation conversation i can say it if i don't think about it (laughs) (laughs) okay to learn more about our guest find links to information shared in this episode or to listen again you can find us online at mawazoinstitute.org backslash podcast you can subscribe to the Nairobi Ideas podcast on YouTube iTunes Afropods Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts to our listeners thank you for tuning in to our climate and conservation series where we sit down with scientists activists thinkers innovators and decision makers who are helping to engineer sustainable African futures New episodes from the series drop twice a month with the next episode in about two weeks. Till then, from all of us here at the Mawazo Institute, bye and keep it nerdy.